such a joy to be worshiping with you in the Holy Spirit. And I invite you and the Holy Spirit to really infuse these words with meaning as we read them. We're in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God bless. morning everyone we'd like to invite the children to children's church um the teacher meet you in the back there give them a moment to clear out and uh let's go ahead and pray together before we turn to god's word lord what a what a startling thing to think that we will see you as you are. Lord, when Peter and John saw you in the transfiguration glorified, the gospel writers tell us they didn't know what to say. And so they spoke anyway. They were so amazed. And Lord, um, that was just a brief glimpse, just a taste of what it will be like. So, Lord, we long for what they call the beatific vision, that beautiful vision of seeing you as who you are and how it will transform us. And, Lord, we long for that day. And, Lord, between then and now, there is suffering. There is um, difficulty in this life. This is, as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, this is the normal Christian life until your return is trouble, weariness, sorrow, and Lord, you're not unfamiliar with it. You are a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. You bore our, will, our weaknesses. And so we're grateful that we have you to look forward to and you to have walked in this with us. Give us strength, we pray. And Lord, this morning, we turn our attention to Haiti, where 17 missionaries from the Christian aid ministry out of Ohio were kidnapped by a pretty ruthless gang. And Lord, we don't know their, their um, fate. We don't know what you have in store for them. 
But Lord, we pray for all of them as they are in captivity, as they're probably being rushed from place, place to place. Lord, would you in this moment, Holy Spirit, strengthen their faith. Cause them to rely on you even more when they are completely out of control, when, when they are completely beyond anything they could have expected. Lord, we thank you that they have gone to help the people of Haiti. And Lord, I pray for their safe return, that you would uh, deliver them from uh, their, their captors. And Lord, you would break their captors hold on them. But Lord, in the midst of it, we pray for their faith. We pray for their safety. And Lord, we pray that they would be exceptional witnesses to Christ in, in trial and in hardship. I pray that they would have a hope that their captors can't understand, that they would be filled with a joy that, that transcends what should be happening at the moment. Lord, I think of Paul and Silas in the prison at, uh, at Philippi singing hymns in the middle of the night. And Lord, um, may that be a, a kind of testimony, a kind of witness. And Lord, as you shook the, the, the um, jail in uh, Philippi, Lord, would you shake these captors and, uh, and burst open those doors. Have mercy on the, the captives and the captors, we pray. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we, we need you, Holy Spirit, desperately. Um, this is your word. It is spiritually appraised. And Lord, we would be foolish to charge in without asking, without inviting you to show us what it means. So Lord, be with us now as we turn to your word. And we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Um, there is something about the Oscars that bugs me. Um, kind of odd, but work with me on this for a moment. So think about the Oscars for a moment. You have this actor who gets paid millions of dollars to make a movie. Um, typical movie shoots last eight months to a year. Sometimes it can be really hard depending on the movie, but they get millions of dollars to make this movie. And then once the movie's finished and they're going to go out, they go out on promotion tours where fans come to hear what they have to say and, and they go on tour and they talk with talk show hosts and they're celebrated for this new film that's coming out. And then the movie debuts and they make tons of money as people around the globe see this film and just love them. And, and they, they adore these, these movie stars. And then um, that's not enough. That, that, that's not where it ends. Once a year, they all get together and tell each other how wonderful they are and present little gold statues to each other and say, because all of that adulation, all of that money was not enough for them. They need to be told how wonderful they were too. Now, not all of them are that bad. I mean, there are some actors who, who are genuinely humbled by receiving that, but that just always bugged me. So, so that's the Oscars. That's what they get for doing that. There's another reward. There's another award that they can receive that they don't want. It's really not something that Hollywood desires. It's called the Golden Raspberry, the Razzies. And they give them to the worst movies or the worst actors of the year. And uh, so for example, uh, in 2019, the worst actor award went to John Travolta for two movies in one year, two movies. The Fanatic and Trading Paint, two movies that he made in 2019. I had never heard of either one. I am not alone in never hearing of either one. Um, the Fanatic was a film about an autistic man who obsesses over a favorite actor. Um, when it debuted, it's, it's opening weekend, they made $3,000. Trading Paint was a movie about race cars. And when it debuted, it's opening weekend made $0. So this is why he won Worst Actor. 
is uh, he made these two really horrible films. They occasionally do Razzie special awards. And so, for example, in 2019, uh, the award for the worst reckless regard for human life and public property went to Rambo, Last Blood. In 2017, the Razzie nominee, So Rotten You Loved It, went to the movie Baywatch. And in 20, uh, 2003, worst excuse for an actual movie went to The Cat in the Hat. Now, some of the actors actually go and receive these awards. The one with Sandra Bullock receiving her Razzie was wonderful. She was so charming and so funny and just very humble about receiving it. When uh, Dwight Johnson received his Razzie for Baywatch, um, he, he posted online and he, he seemed to be actually delighting in the fact that he got a Razzie for it. He said, you know, Baywatch wasn't everything we were hoping for, but, you know, thank you for the award. And so some of these people are really humble about it. And some of them just, you know, won't acknowledge it all. It's, it's an insult to them. Which one do you want? Do you want the Oscar or do you want the Razzie? These two options are presented to you and, and you can do either one, you know, hopefully we're, we're aiming for the better one of the two, right? Nobody goes out and wants to make a rotten movie, um, but they get made. So what we're going to see this morning is Paul is going to present to us two awards, two prizes. They're, they're a prize that uh, one of them is a prize to pursue. And so Paul is going to present that to us and he's going to show us the call to pursue that. He's going to show us a model of what it looks like to pursue that. And in the end, he's going to describe the, the, the prize that you win. So I'm going to follow his outline. I'm not going to explain what the prize is at the beginning. I'll save that to the end, okay? So if it sounds a little out of order, it, it's on purpose. So Paul begins. He says, not that I have attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this is the call that we have received. We have been called to a prize of the upward call of God, and it's in Christ. So what Paul says is he says, I haven't already obtained this, nor am I perfect. And what he's talking about is that life that we live now as we struggle through from now until our, the grave, we're wrestling and we're trying and, and we're, we're trying to be better people and we're trying to be more conformed to Christ. And, and it's difficult because we have some great advances and then we have some real setbacks. And what Paul's telling us here is he says, I haven't obtained it. I'm not perfect. He, he hasn't arrived, but he said, even though that's true, even though I'm still struggling, I'm still heading for that prize. I'm still reaching for that goal that's been set before me. Now, within Christian circles, there is a doctrine called perfectionism or complete sanctification. And what it teaches is as you grow in Christ, you can get to the point where you stop sinning. It's a dangerous doctrine. It's, it's not founded in, in scripture. Uh, there's plenty of scripture that says that's not true. But it happens. There, there are people that teach it. And if you believe in this complete sanctification, it can have one of two results. It can make you proud. I've done it. I, I have stopped sinning. I don't sin anymore. And when you get proud, guess what? You have very little sympathy for anybody else. Why can't you get your act together? I don't understand why this person is still struggling. I was able to overcome sin. Why can't they? And that's one danger is, is you believe you've done it and you become proud. The other danger is you believe it's possible and you know you haven't done it. 
And what that can lead to is despair. Why do I keep coming back to this sin again and again and again? Why do I, why do I lie one more time? Why do I lust when I don't want to? Why is it that I keep telling rumors and, and listening to bad things? Why can't I ever get over this? And, and it's possible, it's doable. I must be a bad Christian. And it can lead to despair. Paul's telling us here, the reality, my friends, is I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. And so don't worry about that. What he says is, I don't consider that I've made that own. I forget what came behind, what I, what I left behind. Now, do you remember last week? He, he listed his accomplishments. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the righteousness of the law, I was perfect. And, and look at all I had. And he looks back and he says, that's all garbage. I, I don't count on any of that. That's not the perfectionism that I wanted. What he's looking for is something better. He's looking for the prize of the upward call of Christ that's where he's aiming. And so if you're tempted towards perfectionism, if you think, well, you know, I haven't sinned this week. I've been, I've done pretty good. Take care. The first John tells us anybody who says they, they are without sin is a liar. And you make God a liar. Now, the other thing that John says is anybody who just lives in sin is, is, you know, not saved either. What John is presenting is not a paradox. He's presenting the struggle of the Christian. It's Romans chapter seven. Why do I do the thing I don't want to do and the good that I do want to do, I don't do? Why? And then in the end, Paul's resolution in, in uh, Romans seven is, thanks be to God. Thanks be to Jesus Christ who rescues me from this body of sin. And so that is the, the normal Christian life is we have a call. We are called to something better. And between now and then, we struggle and we strain and we wrestle and we press on. It's a very active term. We press on to that thing. That's the call that God has placed on your life. That's what he wants you to do. Now, Paul doesn't leave us with just this call and go, well, now go figure it out. Go figure out how to do this. What he tells the Philippians and what he tells us is, I want to set a model for you. I want to show you what this can look like. So verse 15, he says, but those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. So the mature Christian is not the one who goes, well, I've arrived. I get it all figured out. I've stopped sinning. Um, what that probably means, by the way, is I had this gigantic sin in my past and I've, I've overcome that. And now I haven't gone back and look again and go, oh, there was this little one hiding behind it. So the mature person is the person who's gone through this a number of times and went, okay, put that one away. Now what? Oh man, this is one I didn't want to face. So if, and, and what he promises here is if you think of any other way about these things, God will reveal it to you. Now, how will God reveal that to you? He, he could wake you up in the middle of the night and say, remember what you said yesterday? And have anybody ever had that wake up in, in the middle of the night? And you go, oh, gosh, I can't believe I did that. And you just feel terrible. What a jerk. He could do that. He could do that very, very directly into what you're thinking at the moment. He could also use the saints in this church. Somebody could come up and go, you know, that was really a jerk move. Maybe you should back off. So God will use whatever means is available to, to let you know you're not thinking correctly. But we want to be mature. 
We want to be growing up. And so think this way. That's what he's telling us. He goes on, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So what does he mean by let us hold true to what we have attained? He's just said, I haven't attained this. I haven't gotten there. What he's saying here is, is he's saying what we've already got, we've made progress, we're this far, keep walking that way. The word for uh, hold true has to do with walking in a straight line. It has to do with marching. And so what he's saying is, since we have gotten this far in the faith, don't retreat. Folks, don't lose heart because that sin that so easily entangles shows up again, and it shows up again, and it shows up again. Don't, don't lose heart in that. Hold on to what you have obtained, attained so far. What have you set behind you? What have you cast off so far? What has God done in you to this point? Focus on that. Remember that he's been faithful through that. So let us hold true to what we have attained already. Brothers, join me in imitating and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Join in imitating me. Is Paul proud? Is Paul being boastful here? Is he saying, dudes, I've arrived. Check me out. That can't be what he's saying. And, and let me explain why. If somebody is proud, if somebody is saying, I'm it, what they're saying is, I have arrived. I have done it all. You should all look to me because I am so wonderful. What did Paul just say? I haven't arrived. I haven't made it. I'm not perfect. But what he's telling us here is, now look to me. I, I'm walking in this. I'm continuing on. I'm struggling through. And so I may be just a little further ahead of you. The mature should know this, right? I might be a little further ahead of you. That doesn't mean I've arrived. It means you see somebody further up the trail, you know which way to go. The other thing that proves that Paul is not being proud here is a proud person would consider themselves as the standard. I'm it. I mean, you guys aren't even there yet. What does Paul say? He says, now consider others who walk this way. Look at other people. So he's not drawing attention to himself and saying, I'm it. He's saying, look to folks around you who are like this. Watch them. See what they do. So what is, he, what is he drawing us to here? What is he telling us to do? He's telling us to imitate him and keep an eye on those who walk according to the example. So we can't keep an eye on Paul. He is dried up and dust and gone. But that's not what he's telling us. He's telling us to keep an eye on those who set this example. So look around you. And think about people in the church who you would like to emulate. This person is so great at being friendly. And I really struggle with that. So look to that person and, and listen and learn and draw close and, and observe what they're doing. Pay attention to the example they've set. This person is full of mercy. And I just, I have a hard time with mercy. I just really get angry at people. Let's don't think that that strands you there, that it leaves you in that place. Look to those who set the example. Draw close to them. How can I learn to speak that way? How can I learn to think that way? How are they processing this? The other thing is don't fall for the perfectionism, right? We already talked about that. Don't look and go, well, this person is really good at mercy, but they're not so sharp on, on doctrine. So I shouldn't have anything to do with them. Or this person is really good at being hospitable, but you know, they, they can't speak well. We're not all there. You can look to somebody who is mostly there, who's got most of it 
in some area and imitate that. Um, it takes a village kind of thing. It takes a church. We need to all be involved in that. So the model that Paul has set for us, he's, first of all, he says that he hasn't laid a hold of it yet, but Christ has laid a hold of him. And then he says, now you guys, look, look around you. Who's doing this? Who has drawn closer to Christ than you have? Head for those. Watch those people. Keep an eye on them. There's a book that was written in 1995 by a guy named Dick Keyes. Dick was uh, um, involved with Lebray Ministries. Um, that was Francis Schaeffer's kind of Christian retreat. And I, I think I came across a book in this library, if I remember right. But it was about heroes. And I thought, what an odd book. But it has, I think, some spiritual application. He's talking about heroes, talking about people we look to, that we admire, that we say, this person has got something that I'd like. And he explains, that, he explains it this way. He said, a hero not only defines and embodies something of value to us, but he or she engages our imagination and motivates us to try to make that virtue our own. So it's okay to have heroes, to look to somebody and say, I would like to be more like them. The fact that you see in that person a degree of kindness that you don't feel you have means I want something like that. I'm, I'm aware of that kindness and I would like to have that. They can inspire you. They can, they can model it for you and, and they might not even know it. That's the thing is you might be doing something that somebody admires and, and is trying to model and you might not even know it. So don't think that, you know, you're just the bottom of the cast here. That idea that other people can model these things for you is what will draw us, what will help us get to the upward call of God in Christ. Okay, so what is it? What is the prize? What are we heading for? Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So here's the Razzie. Here's the Razzie Award. This is the award you don't want. Paul is not kind of going, well, those jerks, you know, I wish they'd just get over it. He says, I tell you, even with tears, it wounds him deeply to think about these people. Probably because this is still in his context, he's still talking about the Judaizers. The people who've come into the church and go, you have to be bad. You have to be circumcised. And, and once you're circumcised, then you have to follow the law and then you can become a Christian. And, and that is probably why he's, he's saying it with tears is this is my countrymen. And I'm really sorry to see them behave like this, but his words for them are not very glowing. Remember what he called them earlier last week. He said that they were dogs. They were evildoers. He referred to them as mutilation. And he said, no, we're, we're the real circumcision. We are the real people of God who worship in spirit. So here he uses three terms again. He says that they are enemies of the cross, that their end is destruction. So th this idea that their end is destruction is where are they headed? In the end, what prize will they achieve? They will achieve hell. If they want to come to God and say, Lord, look at all the things that I've done. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised. Look, I've kept all your law. If that's their basis, if that's what they're resting their hope on is their achievements, what they've accomplished, their end is destruction. 
Now, destruction, he doesn't mean that they will be obliterated. It's called annihilationism. They just blink out of existence. That's not what he means. What he means is an eternal hell. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So if our life is eternal, then their destruction is eternal. That's a terrifying thing. That's why we heard in Sunday school, you can start out as Ishmael, a child of the flesh, longing for those kinds of things. But Dan reminded us, you can call Ishmael to become Isaac, children of promise. So their, their end is destruction if they won't turn, if they won't say, I'm not trusting myself, I'm trusting Jesus Christ and nothing else. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. What a strange term. They worship their own tummy, like Buddha. You ever see the Buddha with the big belly? No, what he's saying there is their God is their appetites, their desires, what they want. So what defines them? What tells them what's right and what's wrong in this world? What Their appetites, their belly. What do I desire? I would like to be made much of. I would like people to think that I'm really a great guy. And that's their appetite. That's their God. What will it take to make people think that I'm wonderful? Um, they, you should all be like me. That's, that's all. So that's their God is their belly. And then he says, they glory in their shame. They glory, they find what should be shameful to them to be something that is just wonderful. Isn't this great? Now, in this context, Paul is, is talking about these people who are trying to observe the law and compel other people to be under the law. That should be a shame to them. The law has been a burden to them. The Council of uh, Jerusalem in Acts um, chapter 15, I believe it is, they said, this has been a burden for us. We can't bear this. So let's not try to push this on the Gentiles. What should be a shame to them, what should lead them to go, I am really a sinner and I'm really in trouble. Instead, they glory in. They've lied to themselves. Today, this is even more prominent. People glory in their shame all kinds of ways because they've rejected whatever little bit of God they had. And so my, my horrible thing that I do, that, that defines me and it makes me wonderful. And, and you should all glory in that. They glory in their shame. So their end is destruction and their minds are set on earthly things. That's the Razzie Award. That's the one you don't want. So what's the Oscar here? What's the award we're aiming for? Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like the glory, his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. You are an American living in America. That's not your citizenship. In, in 10,000 years, will you still be an American? There won't be an America to be part of. In 10,000 years, will you still be a member of the kingdom of God? Your citizenship is in heaven. And so one of the things that I think we need to remember when we say our citizenship is in heaven is Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a thing in vain? 
the, the nations are up and down. They're all over the place. They're raging. People are plotting all these great ideas. We're going to dominate the world this way. We're going to revolutionize the world that way. And what does he say? He who sits in heaven laughs. He who sits in heaven. Maybe we should adopt God's perspective on this. And when we see the nations rage, give it a little chuckle. Nice try, guys. Good one. He holds them. The Lord holds them in derision. Derision is a, a scorn with a bit of a little bit of irony in it, a little laugh to it as well. So, so God is looking at the rolling of the nations, the roaring of the, the sea, and he goes, yeah, that's cute. You're still going to accomplish my purpose. You're still going to bring about what I intend. And so uh, since our citizenship is in heaven, maybe that's how we should approach this as well. I'm reading a book right now, and the, the author talks about sacred indifference. It's about interpreting the news. And instead of putting on the news and watching and getting really upset about what's happening in West Virginia, maybe we could adopt a little sacred indifference and go, nation's rage, people plot in vain. Uh, people are going to be hurt by this, and, and that's terrible, but I'm not going to let it upset my, my peace. My citizenship is in heaven. So if you were, for example, to live in France for a couple of years, and you saw the French doing all sorts of goofy things, you wouldn't necessarily be terribly upset. You'd be, you'd be wounded for the friends of yours who are going to be affected by it, but you wouldn't be like torn up about it because it's not my nation. I'm, I'm leaving. And so that's our citizenship is in heaven is helps us to adopt that holy indifference to step back a little bit from the fray. And when we adopt a holy indifference, then we can actually be better citizens because now we're free to critique and praise. We're looking at it from a different perspective, not my political party, but from God's perspective, our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? What does that get us? What do we win by being uh, citizens of heaven? We await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we're waiting for Jesus. Notice he doesn't say Jesus has arrived or it's all over or it's done with. We're waiting. And we're not just waiting for Jesus to return and uh, smite the, the, the unrighteous. He's a savior. He's our savior. And so we're waiting for him to return. He's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's our savior. So what does he bring with us when he returns? What do we gain when Jesus returns? What we gain is, Paul says, and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is the thing that Paul has been saying, the prize that we're, we're reaching for, the goal that we're aiming for. It is the resurrection from the dead. That's what he's counting on. That's what he's looking forward to. That's what he said last week as he said, um, that I may attain to the resurrection. So he, he's struggling, he's working, he's, he's doing all that he can. And his hope is that he's in the right place at the right time and Jesus is there for him. Not that he's going to be good enough. We've heard that numerous times. He's, he's hoping that this is the place to go. And, and biblical hope is not, it's unlikely, but it would be nice if it happened. Biblical hope is, I'm sure it's coming and it's just not here yet. So he's hoping for that resurrection. What do we, what is the resurrection? What do we mean when we talk about the resurrection? What will our bodies being transformed look like? The best place to go for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 44. Listen. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what will the resurrection look like? Um, I did a lot of reading on that this week, and there's a lot of difference of opinion on this. Um, one of the things I had always hoped for in the resurrection when my body is raised and I'm glorified is I was hoping for a sanctified hairline. Um, I'm not positive that that's part of it. <laughs> Jesus, when he was raised in a glorified body, appeared to his disciples and said, here, probe my hands, put your hand in my side. He bore the wounds that he had when he died. Now, what does that mean for us? I, I don't know. There's not a whole bunch of real detailed information, but listen to what Paul said. What's sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. When you think of perishable foods, you go into the grocery store and they have the produce right up front. That stuff is perishable. That has to be changed out on a regular basis. If you take it home and you throw it in the fridge, eventually you're gonna to have to throw it away. You buy some peaches and you don't eat them all. They turn soft and gooey and then they start turning fuzzy and then they, they attract flies. That's what's sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. I saw a video this week of a family that found in their grandmother's home uh, food that had been preserved in 1901. And they opened the jar and they ate it. From 1901, the, the, the husband ate, they opened it up and they would kind of like, does it smell bad? Um, and they, they had some preserved peaches and he ate them. And he said, these are really good from 1901. So that's the idea here is it's perishable when it's sown, it's imperishable when it's raised. That's the resurrection. Our bodies as they are now are perishable. I was talking with, with Bob this morning about aches and pains and creaks and groans and what I can't do anymore and what I would love to be able to do. And the body is going to wear out. For you young folks, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. I was once 25 and indestructible also. And now I, I, I can't do what I used to do. I wear out a lot quicker. The body wears out. It's perishable. What was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What's sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What, what does he mean by dishonor? He doesn't mean that the act of creating a child is a dishonorable thing. What he means is we are created, we are born in dishonor because of Adam. He brought sin into the world. Romans 5.12, for sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Therefore, death is spread to all. So we are born into a state of dishonor. But when we're raised, we'll be raised to glory. We'll be raised to something that'll be much better than what it is now. We're sown in weakness. We're raised in power. Um, I understand weakness and power at my age. It, it, it's coming home to roost. What's sown in natural body will be raised to spiritual body. I used to read that and go, I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, how can a body be spiritual? Well, that's because I think I misunderstood what he meant by spiritual. A natural body is a body that is like what we have now. It's controlled and, and ruled by nature. So it, it is subjected to what nature has for it. Our, our flesh has not been redeemed. I don't know if you've noticed that. Our spirits have. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit, but our bodies remain the same. So our flesh and our bones keep wanting to do what they had been doing all along. 
And that's why sin keeps coming back and bugging us. It's a natural body. It's what human nature since the fall has been like. It's been infected with sin. And don't think that, that the flesh is only like hands and arms. Your brain, that big mushy gray matter between your ears, that's part of the flesh. And so that has patterns and, and neurons and things that fire in a certain way. So your spirit wants to go this way and your whole body wants to go that way. And that's the struggle. That's the I have not arrived yet moment that we're in now. That's the natural body. Then what does it mean to be raised a spiritual body? Well, the word spiritual doesn't mean uh, non-physical. It doesn't mean no physical reality. Our resurrection is not, we go to heaven, we wear white robes, have a little halo over our head and play harps. That's a temporary thing. The resurrection is physical. Our bodies will be raised. We will be raised like Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and said, Put your hands in my hand, probe, probe my hands, put your hand on my side. Do you have a fish? Let me eat in front of you. It's a physical reality. So when he says that we're raised a spiritual body, what he's talking about is the nature of that body. We will be ruled by the, the thing that will dominate us is not the sinful flesh, but the spirit. And so that's what our resurrection body is looking like. So that struggle that we have now is we're trying to reach our way to that goal. When we arrive, we get it. We have been raised. You have been set free from sin. And so then in, in the end of chapter 15, Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So that he's saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's telling us in, in Philippians 3. Press on for the goal. Your labor now is not in vain. It doesn't just disappear. You will be raised in this body. You will be brought together with the Lord. He will transform you into his glorious body. So all the struggle, all the difficulty, all the hardship that we face now is not useless. It counts. Why do we have to be raised? Couldn't we just be spirits? Do we have to be raised and put in physical bodies? Well, yeah, I think we do. And I think it's actually good news. It's better news that we wind up that way in the end than it is that we're just disembodied spirits floating around. First of all, God created this giant, huge universe and he put us in it, physically put us in it. So we get this whole universe to explore, to understand, to look into. We'll need a body to go do those things, but even better, even better than that. Listen to the story of the end. This is from Revelation 21. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Skipping ahead a little bit. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Skipping ahead. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our end, our goal, where we're heading is a city. And it's a city unlike anything we've ever heard of before. Right dead center of the city is not a temple with a veil and a curtain and a wall. Right in the center of the city is the Lord God and the Lamb. And we walk into that city. We walk with him. We need these physical bodies in the future because the promise is, God says, I will wipe away every tear. You have to have a cheek. You have to have an eye. You have to have a tear duct to have a tear for God to wipe it away. And so the reality is the upward call, the place that we're heading, the reason that we struggle through on a day-to-day basis is not so that we have a nice church. That's a huge benefit. The goal is we are striving towards that resurrection, toward that beautiful day, that that time when we are set free from the limitations of the body, the the, the weakness that that besets us, the sin, the the orneriness, the the weakness that we're, we're conceived in, and instead we arrive at glory. And we get God, we get Jesus. So this is Paul's, Paul's um, Oscar for us. Shun the Razzies. Head for the Oscar. Press on. You want the upward call of Christ. And isn't it great news? He doesn't say, now go figure it out, but he surrounds you with other people. And he goes, look what I did in this person's life. Can you do that? Look what I did in this person's life. Because Paul has already told us it's God who is at work in us to will and to do. He, he tells us in this passage, it's because I haven't laid a hold of it, but Christ has laid a hold of me. So you have a divine conspiracy on your side. God is sneaking in and he's moving you in that direction. And he tells you, now walk, let's go. Hold on to what you've attained. Walk in the pattern, walk in the path of what you've attained. It's a beautiful prize that awaits you, saints. So let's press on together. Let's lock arms and help the people who are weak, help those who are struggling. Look to them with love and say, let me, let me, let me buddy up beside you and, and help you keep marching on. And we can arrive at that beautiful goal together. Let's pray. Lord, the, the promise of the resurrection, we can't conceive of it now. We have spent our entire lives in these bodies of weakness, these bodies of shame, these bodies of what is earthly. And we can't conceive of what it will be like when this body is made new, when it's refreshed, when it's made into the image of you. And Lord, we, we, the, the, the little taste that we can get of it, we long for that day. Lord, would you lead us to be faithful in the, mentor, in the interim between now and then, be faithful 
to follow after you and know that, that you have laid hold of us. Lord, thank you for the examples you give us. I can think of many people in my life that, that I look to, many of them in this room right now. Thank you for the work you've done in them and the example that you give to me. May we all gain from each other's example. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.